0: First of all, I want to make a little bit of a sideline point. I think it's really important to realize that politics is a team sport. You don't get things done by yourself. Individuals don't do things in politics. You get things done in politics when you can find other allies and work together to accomplish things.
1: Thinking on Lincoln, the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things on 23rd and Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Sheldon. Joined as always with my co-host, Ryan Haney, and our producer, Lindsay McSparron. What's up? Here's Ryan. It's been a minute. It has been. Yeah, we've been kind of gone for the summer, haven't we?
2: Yes. Vacations, uh, minor medical procedures. Minor. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. I wasn't uh, wasn't really interested in doing a podcast from the lake uh, where I was with my family. You went to yeah i had a wyoming
1: right also st louis yeah it was kind of a full week for me this first time i took a full week off of work since i've been here i think it was nice good time
2: yeah yeah i still haven't done the full week yet yeah uh i left on tuesday this last time around where y'all what lake y'all go to you fall i went to carlton landing spent some time there uh love that spot great spot just it's just a cool atmosphere right
1: there's kind of a cult out there right that's what i've heard I, think you told me about that.
2: Uh, I don't think I told you it was a cult. Uh, you may have heard that, and I can see, I can maybe see where people might uh, think that if if it is a cult, it's a cult, it's a cult in the best sense. Okay, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. a cult of happiness. You. I I do think we should say that we do have a plan going forward to make this a podcast every other week. So for we those do. for for anyone who is. Like frustrated that, you know, they're just eagerly waiting by their phone, waiting for a notification that there's a new episode of Thinking of Lincoln. The goal is to have a podcast every other week. Right.
1: We failed you this summer yes. with our, with our selfish kind of vacation plans. Too. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but now that we're back, we're going to be back, yeah, twice a month, every other Wednesday. Every, we're going to be recording every Sometimes other Wednesday. three times a month. Perhaps, I think, yeah.
2: sep- I think September might be three times a month. Oh, there major. you go, bonus month. Yeah, could be. Um, so, yeah, I I think that that'll be good today. We have an awesome guest. We do, yeah. Dr. Our very young Dr. Farmer. Yeah, Dr. Rick Farmer. Uh, for those who don't know, and and we we talked about this a little bit on the pod. Dr. Farmer is a is is my roommate here at OCPA, and just a he's forgotten more about political science than I will ever know. And I think I think based on the conversation we just had, everyone who listens to the podcast is really going to enjoy what he has to say, both about. Um, about term limits, mm-hmm. about um, uh, his idea of this this legislative football. He took that metaphor pretty far, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's very
1: well. It's very well. I mean, we'll, we'll link line, it to the Sideline issues, right, team yeah. sport. I mean, it went even it's further all, than yeah. I thought It, it was makes video. it easy for people like me who are just drowning in sports metaphors most of the time. That's understand. right. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, and then he talks a little about the Fierce Fellowship, which um, if you live in Tulsa and you. And uh, you are or know a young, a young person, whether they're in college or sort of getting started in their career and they want to learn more about the American founding and uh, conservative ideas, you should encourage them to apply. We're going to put that in the show notes. Yeah, um,
1: I think both of us have done it and we can attest to we have, how much you can learn. And, uh, that's right. All three of us. Yeah. Gone through it. Yeah. It's a good so. time. You learn a lot for sure. You meet a lot of very cool people. So
2: definitely, definitely. And there's a slide band. For there those is that may be interested. Okay. Well, uh with with that, you wanna you wanna to get to the interview with Dr. Farmer? Yeah, let's do
1: it. All right. Hope y'all enjoy. All
2: right, we're joined by our good friend, colleague, and my office roommate, Doctor Rick Farmer. How are you, Rick? Who knew you had a roommate? Oh, I have two roommates.
0: <laughs>
1: do they both know about that?
2: Yeah, well, we get the, we're all in there together.
1: Oh, that's right. Me, I, I always me, forget Ray about George. I yeah. never see George very often. Me and him don't cross paths.
2: Yeah, so Rick Rick, uh, Rick, is the dean of the Fierce Fellowship Program and also usually oversees our interns. So this, this time around, the intern's in our office.
0: So being dean of the Fierce Fellowship gets you one intern who has to share an office with the two of us, yes? Yeah, we call it the There's man stages. cave.
2: For For those who don't know, it's the man cave. Um Well, well, Rick, we're super happy to have you on the podcast today. Um, You are probably, I mean, even though Curtis and I have this really popular, awesome podcast, I think you're more famous than us, so you almost need no introduction. Everywhere I go in Oklahoma State politics, I mention I work at OCPA. People say, oh, do you know Rick Farmer? And I tell them that not only do I know you, but that we're roommates and best friends. Uh, so, how long have you been with OCPA?
0: Uh, about two years.
2: Okay, and you have uh, you, you went to OU for your PhD in poli sci?
0: Political science PhD at OU. Yes.
2: And then uh, taught for a while.
0: Uh, I had an opportunity to teach at the University of Akron, which is in Ohio. Yep. And I was up there for seven years, just long enough to earn tenure, and then a job opening came back in Oklahoma. And I left a job I could never be fired from to take a job that I could be fired from at the drop of a hat.
2: Yeah, that seems, uh, that's the most Rick Farmer thing ever. And so you came back uh, to work for the house, the Oklahoma State House, is that right?
0: Came back to help manage some of the staff at the House of Representatives, and I was the director of committee staff. So I oversaw the research people, that was my main function was to oversee the research people. But I was also assigned the bill drafting staff, and I was assigned the budgeting staff. And this was
2: right about the time that the Oklahoma legislature went from, uh, when, when the, the parties switched the majority. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but is that right?
0: Yes. So the Republicans took the majority in 2004 election. and In both in both chambers or just no, the House? No, in the House. Okay. And, and then a number of the staff people who were... Part of the nonpartisan staff, but they were basically there at the behest of the Democrats. Um, many of them found other jobs and left. And so there were a number of openings that needed to be filled, and I took the place of a um, my predecessor was also an OU PhD in political science.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. So uh so this was you came back in two thousand four? Yes. Is that right? came,
0: okay. Um Came back at Christmas 2004 to go to work in 2005.
2: And at that time, the funny—I think a lot of people that I meet that know who you are worked with you around that time. Yes. It seems like, I mean, Jonathan Small, CEO of OCPA, was in the house at yes. that time, right?
0: Jonathan was at the Office of State Finance, which is in the governor's office. Oh, okay. I see. Um, that was Governor Brad Henry. And so, Jonathan was sort of looking for an opportunity to escape that Democratic office and go to work (laughs) for some Republicans. And so, he came over and...
2: And this is the first time that opportunity has really presented itself.
0: Well, Republicans had had control of the governor's office off and on, but they had not had control of either chamber of the legislature since 1922. So, that was the first... And technically, it's a nonpartisan staff, but so was the staff in the governor's office that Jonathan was working for was also technically a nonpartisan staff.
1: The idea, sorry to interrupt, that idea that for someone who's maybe a little bit younger than the two joining me on the podcast here, the idea that Oklahoma legislature was essentially left for that long I think is so surprising to so many people who aren't really in the know. That's always just fascinating for people like me to hear.
0: At at the time that Oklahoma became a state, uh, Republicans were doing pretty well. But at statehood the Democrats really took control and Republicans never controlled the house or the Senate, except in the 1920 election, they won a majority in the house for that one, two year period. And that was the only time, and they were mostly conservative Democrats though. Some folks that we would have in the past called Dixiecrats. So basically Southerners who had migrated into Oklahoma who w- were conservative Democrats. And, and the real battles at the legislature were more urban-rural than they were Republican-Democrat because there just weren't very many Republicans. But by the time I was actively involved in politics in the late 70s, early 80s, the Democrats controlled two-thirds of the house Senate and three fourths of the House. And wow. so that's completely flipped on right, head its the Exactly of, yeah. the opposite in my adult lifetime.
2: The other thing that's the inverse is, um, and I, I, I recently saw a presentation by Pat McFerrin about this, is that it's, you know, back then, it, the, the one third of Republicans were all urban. Right or yes. mostly urban, suburban. and and the and the Democrats were all rural.
0: Yeah,
2: no, that rural dominance has not changed. It's still rural dominance. It's just now the rural areas are overwhelmingly Republican, yes. and the urban centers have started to have have changed. They've gone from being rep- Republican to Democrat.
0: So yeah, that that really does describe the change pretty well. So uh, very slowly over time. These rural people have become more and more Republican mm-hmm. until now. The Republican areas are dominated. Um, the rural areas are dominated by Republicans. The strength of the Republican Party was really in the suburban areas and somewhat in in the urban areas as well. But but now the Democrats have have uh, come to dominate the sort of the inner city area and that's that's really where their strength is now both in oklahoma city and tulsa
2: right right now you had kind of mentioned when you got involved in politics in the late 70s early 80s our listeners will it'll be it'll be no surprise to them that you voted for ronald reagan but you got a special vote for ronald reagan do you want to talk about that
0: so i was a presidential elector for ronald reagan in 1984
2: Tell us about that process. Well,
0: it was a really easy job because everybody (laughs) knew he was going to be reelected, right? So, I mean, this wasn't really a big deal. Sure. Um, So, you become a presidential elector by going to a state convention or a district, congressional district convention, and being nominated to be an elector. So, I, I was the elector from the second congressional district, and then... People go to the polls to vote for a candidate for president, but they're actually voting for the nominated electors from that state. So when Ronald Reagan won Oklahoma, then the Republican electors were chosen. Uh, We get to do something really exciting. We get to go to the state capitol and meet with the governor. Uh, But you are handed a blank piece of paper that says for the office of president of the United States, I cast my vote for... And you can write in any name that you want, and that gives you one moment of, of incredible power. Yeah. And and then there's a similar form for the vice president.
2: You know what would have worried me about that? Every time I spell Reagan, and I have to look it up. Yes.
0: Mm. Um, who, who knows? I may have spelled it wrong. I, I don't know. <laughs> but if they don't Archives somewhere that we can go and look.
2: Yeah, I'm totally telling them myself <laughs> with that, but I, I mean, at least I do look it up. There, you know, it always cracks me up with, with names. Like that, people will just not even look it up. But I do always have to look up his name, no matter how many times I spell it. Uh,
0: hopefully, those ballots were, have long since been destroyed. But if they're in an the archive somewhere, it'd be fun to go look and it see be, if somebody spelled it wrong.
2: That would be fun. Nice little field trip. Yeah. Now, now your uh, your thesis for your PhD work was done on term limits, right? state
0: legislative term limits. That's great.
2: And this is this was done before Oklahoma adopted term limits, correct?
0: No. Oh, so no. Oklahoma was the first state to adopt term limits, and that was in 1990. I thought it was later. No. So so we passed them in 1990 as an initiative petition, and we passed them on one of our primary ballots, and then California passed them on their general election ballot in 1990. But the, the way it worked in Oklahoma, the reason why you thought it was later, was everybody was grandfathered in in the 1990 election, And so they only started counting after the 92 election. So they started counting in 93, and then it went 12 years. So it went to 2004. And um, so it seems like it took a really long time for for it to come. But that's because you had to count 12 years from 1992. Okay. Uh, And then in the Senate, those people were grandfathered for another two, two years. And so that... even longer. So when I got to OU and was thinking about what topics that I wanted to work on, uh, obviously I was interested in legislative politics and this was just a a good topic. So there were a couple of other people at OU who were working on it at the time and so this was a a good topic to sort of really delve into the Oklahoma legislature and when I looked at term limits I was looking at a lot of things that are happening at 23rd and Lincoln
2: okay and you're for them right
0: so I have always said that I am moderately in favor of lengthy limits so one of the things that I found in looking at term limits and I think everybody would agree everybody who studies term limits would agree the six-year limit that they imposed in California really didn't work out very well and they had six-year limits in some other places as well Um, I think they had a six-year limit in Arkansas, mm. and those created a lot of chaos, and it was difficult to overcome that chaos because you're constantly turning people over. Right. In, in our 12-year limits, we had a lot of time to th- sort of think about it and work on it and get prepared for it, and the new leaders who took over when the old leaders were gone weren't freshmen. They were people who had been in the legislature for a few years and had sort of figured out how the place worked. And so we had a lot less chaos. Okay. And generally speaking, I think the lengthy limits work pretty well. There's there kind of almost every argument that you can make about term limits, sort of a two-sided coin. So people say you lose institutional memory. Well, yes, you do. People say you get new blood and new ideas. Yes, you do. And that's not two different things. That's one thing, two different sides of the same thing. And so a lot of what happens in term limits is kind of like that. And by having the longer limits, you ameliorate some of the bad, and yet you still get the good.
2: Okay. We now have hindsight. Yeah. Have you changed at all since you were studying it?
0: I have not. Now, there are some people who were favorable to term limits when... We were limiting the Democrats and getting them out of the majority.
2: Like Andy Sporopoulos, who you worked with in the House.
0: Uh, Professor Sporopoulos is a person who has changed his mind, but I don't want to put words in his mouth.
2: Oh, I, I, we're going to try to have him on the podcast. So so you full, should. full disclosure that uh, for the audience, that's that's foreshadowing. Yeah. Professor
0: so. <laughs> Sporopoulos, you should come here and explain your change in position on term limits.
2: Absolutely. He, he absolutely should, and I appreciate that plug. But you, but no. you have not. You no, r- remain relatively unchanged.
0: I believe that term limits brings about some good things, and I believe that it creates some problems. And I think the good outweighs the bad. And I think the longer the limits are, the less of the bad that you get.
1: So What was the big put? Was, was there like a big push to install these limits, or was it kind of just a, a
2: groundswell that slowly built up over time? Are we are we about to name names?
0: No, no, I. I, <laughs> I, I I think there, were, there was a lot of, I don't know if anger is the right word, alienation. Pe- people didn't feel like government was being responsive to them. And so we passed several initiatives in that two or three year time frame that put restrictions on, on government. And this was one of those. So the, you can't raise taxes without a vote of the people. You either got to have a two thirds vote at the legislature or you got to have a vote of the people in order to raise something that you would technically call a tax obviously they found other ways to raise revenue but right. revenue raising measures revenue now. raising right. measures but but you can't raise taxes in oklahoma without a vote of the people or a two-thirds vote of the legislature that came shortly before term limits and so there was a certain amount of alienation going on and in fact the first paper that i ever wrote about term limits was based on a survey that i did of the people of oklahoma city and we measured alienation and basically demonstrated that alienation was kind of the thing that was driving it.
1: Interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah, the reason I asked if we were going to name names is because it seems like you can't. Every time I have a conversation about terminals in Oklahoma, a certain legislator from Pittsburgh County uh, gets brought up, and I, I didn't know if that if if that was actually something that was really behind this. I think the right. audience may. So, Just appreciate naming names, perhaps.
0: So, so it's it's really interesting because um, everybody said the term limits came about because of Gene Stipe, Senator yes. Stipe. And Senator Stipe had uh, served in the legislature like 50-something years. And so he's sort of the poster child, the symbol for term limits. But in my survey of the people of Oklahoma City... I specifically asked them about Senator Stipe, and like most politicians, he didn't have that much name ID. People could not have voted for term limits because they want to get rid of Gene Stipe because they didn't even know who he was. Okay. well I'm glad we talked about this. So I I could not statistically demonstrate that he was the reason, but I could statistically demonstrate that alienation was the reason. By the way, I never published that paper, and I regret that. I should have published that paper.
1: Well, here's your chance to put it out there for the
2: public, you know, there you go. Yeah. Do you have it? Uh, do you still have it?
0: It's probably on a floppy disk somewhere. The kind <laughs> of floppy disk that they use to send a man to the moon. <laughs> we,
2: we will probably not be putting that in the show notes. No, then. It's
0: the, the space shuttle. It's the right. kind of floppy disk they use for the space shuttle.
2: Now you've also got this thing you've been working on for several years. You recently wrote uh, a policy article on the OCPA, OCPA website about the legislative process. But you've got kind of this thing that you refer to as legislative football. You want to talk a little bit about that, kind of what it is?
0: So we're naming names, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. This is a yes. podcast all about names. So I I had the opportunity to go from the legislative staff position to work for the newly elected insurance commissioner, John Doak. Okay. Um, another place where I followed Jonathan Small because he had worked for the previous insurance commissioner, and I basically... As he was leaving, I took his job. (laughs) Okay. And uh, so Jonathan Jonathan resigned and was moving on as the new insurance commissioner was coming in. And I was hired to be a legislative liaison. And so I am talking to insurance commissioner John Doak, who knows more about insurance than anybody I've ever talked to. I I have never said to John Doak an insurance concept that he didn't say, oh, yeah, we did that Uh when... And he can tell you about it and who did it and, and what they did and, and the whole deal. I mean, he knows insurance better than anybody. But even though he was a political science major at the University of Oklahoma, like most people who haven't been in college in a few years, he was clueless about the legislature. And, and that's okay. He knows about insurance, and he can hire people like me to handle the legislative pieces of it. So I'm trying to communicate to Commissioner Doak how we're doing on our legislation?
2: Now, was he a big football fan?
0: He is a big football fan. His son at that time was in like little league football, and so he was like little league football coach. Okay. And he's a big OU football fan. So yes, yes, he's, he's yes. yes. big. Ta- his, he on Facebook to this day, Commissioner Dope refers to his home as the South Tulsa OU headquarters. Okay, yeah, I like, it. like game day tailgating parties and stuff like that at Commissioner Doak's house if they haven't gone to the game for the day. Yeah.
2: Well, I think this kind of shout-out warrants an invite for all of us. I may,
0: I think you should have him on the podcast. I may lose ships. <laughs> 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 Commissioner Doak, you need to come on the podcast and talk about legislative football and talk about OU football. And insurance. And insurance, because you know more about insurance than anybody that I... Okay, so, so you're trying so, to
2: explain to... The- so
0: I'm trying to explain to him, and he, he has a very ambitious legislative agenda, as in I have about 20 bills at the legislature that I'm trying to get passed, and I'm walking down the hall talking to some friends of mine who work for other state agencies, I'm like, hey, how are, your bill doing? how are your bills doing? And they're like, oh man, we're not doing very well. And I said, well, how many bills did you have to start with? And they said uh, nine. I said, well, I have 13 that are alive right now. We're halfway through the session because I started with like 21. I mean, he has a very ambitious legislative agenda. And so he comes walking through the office. He's like, hey, how's our bill doing? Like, well, commissioner, um, the bill got out of committee, but they struck the title and um, we're gonna get it off the floor, over into the other chamber. Then we we'll have to get the title back on it. And I mean, he's like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. He, he, his his eyes just glaze over, basically. Yeah. And I look at him and I think about it for a minute, and I say, Commissioner, we're on our own forty, and we have a long way to go. And he's like, Oh, we're on the forty-yard line. I'm like, yeah, but it's gonna to be tough slugging to get.
2: But it's like third and long. Yeah. <laughs> and he
0: gets it. He he's like, Oh, that's wonderful. And so. After a few weeks of communicating with him like that and kind of thinking about it, it, it it sort of gelled in my head that it would actually work if you mapped it out on a football field. And I sat down on a Saturday morning, and in about two hours, I would mapped it out. And, and so I could say, it's on the 45-yard line, the 50, it's on the 30, you know, where, wherever it is. And from then on, that became part of our communication process, and actually put it in We had internal memos that we were sending around to the senior staff about how we were doing, and I put it right on there. And we had things that we sent out to uh, sort of like a personnel newsletter, and I put it right in there. Our bill's on the 30-yard line.
2: Okay. So for the folks that have, it's been a while since they've watched Schoolhouse Rock, um, without getting into things like, you know, conference committees and stuff like that, um, can you kind of break down for, for... the people who are listening to the podcast, kind of what legislative football looks like. Like if you're starting out... The 20, rides right, kind of what you started well, well, at, the 20-yard line. So, so I don't think in this one you do start out on the 20.
0: Do. Oh, you start on the 20? So, so here's a really big problem. Right after I wrote, drew up the map and got the whole thing all organized, then the NCAA decided you can start it at the 25. Right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you screwed up my whole deal. Okay. This is for the
1: old-school <laughs> touchback rules no longer. Okay.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I tried to I tried to figure out kind of what are the key points where you got past a gatekeeper, like a big step where you got past a gatekeeper and a vote, and you're on your way to the next thing. Right. And basically, that boils down to committee, mm-hmm. the floor. Then you have to start over in the it, other it, chamber. It. So it's a bicameral legislature, so you got past one chamber, now you're in the other chamber, committee and floor. And then when you're finished with that, you probably have some amendments involved that are going to have to have some way to resolve those amendments. That's where conference committee may come into play or some other process. And then you've got to go to the floor of the originating chamber, then you've got to go to the other floor, and then you got to go to the governor and get it signed. And so you got a lot of steps in there. And I assigned yardage to each one of those.
2: Yeah. And when I was looking at it, because this is the question I had for you earlier, uh, we've we you and I have already talked about this because we share an office because we're roomies. Um, I think one of the things that, that I think made sense after I thought about it, but I think kind of surprised me as I looked at it, was that you gave... Uh, like it was like a 10-yard advancement if you got it through a committee, which, you know, for those who don't know, like a committee is made up of, you know, a dozen or so legislators, um, and, and, you know, each legislator is in a, you know, four, five, six committees. Um, but getting it through the committee was actually a, 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 a bigger gain on the field than getting it through,
0: like, a floor vote. So there's two reasons for that, and we're going to put this, a link to this in the show notes, right? Yes, we can do that. So people can go and actually read it for themselves. But there, there's two reasons for that. One is because getting it out of committee is the biggest deal. So I did some recent research on the uh, bills that, that got signed by the governor in three recent sessions, I had to do odd sessions that has something to do with the way the legislature keeps statistics. So, I have the last three odd-numbered sessions. i got 21, 19,
2: and
0: 17. Okay. 75% of the bills introduced into the House do not get out of the first committee. Wow. So, that's part of why I signed it extra yardage is because it's a big deal. Right. The second reason why I signed it extra yardage is because I needed some space in case a bill was double assigned... I could give it another five yards. Right. And so, so double assigned would be like if
2: it goes to, say, budget committee. A, a budget committee on top of another committee that's more like topical.
0: So it, it could be assigned to a substitute committee. Well, actually, at the time when I wrote it, what was, what was most likely to happen was it get assigned to the budget committee who would then assign it to a subcommittee. Okay. And mm-hmm. so you got to get the subcommittee chairman to put it on an agenda and then you got to get it voted out and then you got to get the full committee chairman to put it on agenda and you got to get it voted out. And so you got like four things there that I have to capture in the same amount of yardage as if it didn't go to the budget committee. Right. And Mm -hmm. so it ended up being 15 yards if you got it out of committee. But I I did, so that was two extra steps that were stuck in there to make that work. But um, it's also a big deal. So for both of those reasons, that's why I did it.
2: Right. And then, and then... I think your what your statistics show is once they get out of committee like the floor vote is usually not a big issue like not very many bills die on the floor.
0: So at the Oklahoma legislature and actually from from what I've looked at in other states and I've not really studied extensively but from what I've looked at in other states it's basically true pretty much everywhere that very few bills die on a vote get a no vote that Typically, does not happen
2: even in committee.
0: Even in committee, mostly what happens is that a chairman doesn't schedule the the bill for a hearing. And so, getting your bill scheduled for a committee hearing is like the biggest thing. You get it scheduled; it's very likely it's going to pass. And then once it passes, it goes. So now you had this big screening process where 75% of the bills are gone. Only 25% of the bills are left, goes to the floor leader's office. Does he want to schedule it for a hearing on the floor or not? There are a few bills that get left laying on the agenda on the floor, but not very many. They almost all get voted on, and very few of them fail. So there's a, there's there's maybe, I don't know, 20 bills a session, maybe between 10 and 50 bills per session that are left on the floor agenda. Everything else that came out of committee got voted on and went to the other chamber.
2: I was talking with somebody not too long ago who um, uh, is a progressive. They're progressive, right? And so we were, but we work on we work on some of the same issues and have some of the... We we actually do have some some similar uh, goals, especially in the criminal justice uh, reform sphere. Um, and we were talking about how these a lot a lot of some of the democrats get frustrated that they can't get a, they can't even get a hearing in committee and part of that is because they're they're making such a fuss about bills in these committee meetings they're, they're turning these committee meetings that might otherwise be a 2-hour committee meeting into a 4-hour committee meeting fighting against bills that they know are going to pass. And this guy says to me he's like, "Well, but that's like all that's all that they can do. Like all they can do is just raise a stink, you know, as much as they can." So they can go back to their district and say, "Look, I fought it. I tried. I, yes. I I asked a bunch of questions. It still passed because the legislature is dominated by Republicans." And so my thought was, "Well, you should like if they're going to do that, they should just do that on the floor, you know, where pe- more people are watching for starters." I mean, like yeah. the, you know, nobody really keeps an eye on these committee hearings. People actually do watch floor debates. Um, and so my thought was it would be better to do it on the floor. And that, that is still probably true, given the fact that these, these bills are going to pass no matter what. But I suppose from a st- strategic standpoint, if you actually thought you had a chance, it, might, it committee would probably be the better place to, to make that happen.
0: For, first of all, I want to make a little bit of a sideline point. Okay. I think it's really important to realize that politics is a team sport. You don't get things done by yourself. Individuals don't do things in politics. You get things done in politics when you can find other allies and work together to accomplish things. And when you find other allies and you start working together to accomplish things in politics, we call that political parties. So the the problem is not that the Democrats can't ever get a hearing. The problem is the Democrats don't have the votes. They don't have the support. They don't have the support of the voters, and they don't have the support within the legislature to to accomplish things. And that just sort of bubbles up and becomes visible in the form of they can introduce a bill, but they can't get it heard. So I think it's really important to, to keep in mind that it's a team sport out there. And if you're on the wrong team, that's a problem. But you're on the wrong team because you don't have the support of the voters. And I just think that's an important piece of that, whether Republicans are in the minority or or Democrats are in the minority. So increasingly in politics, people have started fighting every battle instead of picking their battles. Mm-hmm. And part of that is sort of bragging rights to say, I fought it as hard as I could, as long as I could. I stood up to it until I just couldn't stand up to it anymore. But I think there's a really good rule of thumb in life that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think that we would all be better off if we picked our battles more strategically. But I would suggest that they're probably fighting it in committee and then fighting it on the floor right. just because they can. Yep. And then they need to go back and be able to tell their constituents, well, I gave it my very best effort. You're not wrong. Yeah. Thank and this, you. That's and my this, political house.
2: <laughs> now everybody knows why I love rooming with Rick so much. Just little nuggets of wisdom yeah, well like that. wealth of knowledge. Kind of jealous. I'm up here by myself most of the time, so. Yeah, with
0: the lights I'm just off. missing okay. out, yeah. Come on down to the man cave. In. Yes. Ooh, yeah, Pull the yeah. chair.
2: I might. Yeah. I mean, four men. In, take that in, invitation in, back in, now, so. In
0: a fairly small room well, is exactly what we need. Bring a question. The, the intern actually... Did his undergraduate work as a minor in philosophy. So just bring a oh, question wow. and you know, yes, you know, yeah. this would be we'll great. Deep yeah. thoughts.
1: We'll just put a deep microphone thoughts. down there and just see what happens.
2: Yeah, it's we, we have poli sci, law, economics, and philosophy. There That's, you go. That would Change. be a, a, a dynamo we, team. Lindsay's we can fix excited. The
0: world.
2: Yeah, um, Lindsay as our spokesperson. Before we let you go, let's talk about the Fierce Fellowship,
0: the J. Rufus Fierce Fellowship. So I was fortunate that OCPA contacted me, Jonathan contacted me and said we want to start a leadership program for young conservatives and we'd like for you to come head it up and so that's why I'm here and I'm really happy to be doing it and basically we are trying to help young conservatives have a better foundation in why they're a conservative and we want them to have that because they're going to face problems, issues, questions that we haven't even imagined yet that exist. So we want them to be grounded in the principles and the foundation so they have something to go back to in making these decisions. It doesn't do us any good to tell them, oh, you need to be against taxes, or you need to be for smaller government, or or whatever the, the issue of the day is, school choice, whatever it is. It doesn't do us any good to tell them, this is what you need to be for. We need to tell them, this is what it means to be a conservative. So when you face questions about artificial intelligence or colonization of Mars or whatever it is that we're going to be thinking about, if they have a firm foundation in what it means to be a conservative, they're going to make better decisions. And that's going to be better for all of us. And that's basically what this is about.
2: Okay. So so tell me if I'm wrong. I, I tend to think of the, the Fierce Fellowship for... Uh, maybe a young person who maybe they listen to Ben Shapiro, uh, but they've never they've never really read much philosophy or thought much about Magna Carta or Federalist Papers or the Declaration. Maybe they've read it, um, but they've never really thought much about it. The Fierce Fellowship sort of grounds them in that sort of of uh, I guess Western thought and and sort of the Western tradition, um, and then also. Is a great networking opportunity. Uh,
0: it is a great networking opportunity, but I want to go back to. You could call it the Western tradition, but let's just call it what it is: the liberal democratic tradition. Okay. With a small L and a small D, so this is what our founding fathers what thought they were setting up was a republic in the tradition of with, with liberal democratic processes and. Th- Those are the things that I believe has raised the standard of living in America to such that not the very poorest. I mean, we recognize that there are homeless people who have very little, but the poor in America in 2021 live better than John Rockefeller lived, the richest man in the world in 1903. They have better health care, they have better communications, they have better transportation, they have better nutrition, they have better all of that than the richest man in the world in 1903. And I believe that this foundation that our founding fathers gave us brought that about. And we want to keep that going for future generations.
2: Okay. And who's J. Rufus Spears and why is it named after him?
0: So Jay Rufus Fears was a professor of classics and history at the University of Oklahoma. He was legendary as a professor. Some of his lectures are online and available to the public. In fact, OU has one full semester's coursework online that people can go and watch. And we use some clips from that as part of the Fierce Fellowship. Uh, it, he was also associated with OCPA. He, he was had a position that was called a fellow here um, at OCPA and gave lectures for OCPA and, and for groups that we might send him to, wrote columns for us and did some interview stuff. Um, he was legendary, and uh, many of his students are around the community, including, Did you took a class from him? I did.
2: I took Freedom in Rome. and That's uh, easily... My favorite class of my undergraduate experience,
0: and I've there are people in state government who took multiple courses from him, several yes, courses true. from him. Jason that, Reese, uh, Jason Gen- Reese? G-
2: General Counsel, uh, Governor Sit's General Counsel took I think two or three classes with him. The Deputy General Counsel also had him, um, uh, Jeffrey Cartmel. So, yeah, yep. a lot of folks in in state government. Yep. So,
0: so what we try to do there is the it's a five week about three hours um, on five Saturdays and the first session really talks about the foundations of democracy so the ancient Greeks and Romans and kind of where the idea of self-government and democracy come from and then the second week really focuses on the Declaration of Independence the Constitution the Federalist papers kind of the idea of America, and, and um, uh, how it's likely to work. Essentially, they were trying to, to predict what was gonna happen. And then in the third week, we talk a little bit about the progressive movement and kind of how those ideas got going in what we think is the wrong direction, obviously. But we also spend some time talking about the difference between being a conservative and a libertarian, which I think is really valuable for young, right, Center right leaning people, and we welcome libertarian impact. students is, too, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and and uh, but being able to make that distinction for themselves so they can sort of figure out, okay, where am I on this scale between conservative and libertarian? I think is really good thing for them. And then in the fourth week, we have a really great basic economics one one of the best basic economics lectures that I've ever heard. Of by Dr. Per Bilen from OSU comes in and explains it in such really simple terms that even I can understand it. I mean, it's just really great stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and, and uh, his, his the first three or four chapters of his book are, are really accessible and really help you understand, and then the rest of the book talks about sort of applying that to some other things that you may or may not be interested in, but the, the beginning of it's really good. Uh, for understanding basic economics and then in the fifth session we really talk about leadership and the chairman of OCPA's board Larry Parman has written a book on leadership and we give everybody a copy of his book and he comes in and talks about that book or or talks about leadership from that perspective
2: and you've got a cohort coming up this semester in Tulsa or this fall I should say
0: so when is this going to go live when when are people going to hear this Mm. Okay, so... We We're
2: recording this on Wednesday the 11th. 11th. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it should be live within the next couple of days. Correct. So, the, on Monday is the deadline. Monday the 13th is the deadline for the Fierce Fellowship in Tulsa. And uh, it actually starts about a month later. But we have a group that's coming up in Tulsa, and we are looking for young people who want to learn about these things and aspiring leaders, and uh, that deadline is Monday, so hopefully they'll go to fiercefellowship.com and ask for an application, and we'll send them more information and send them an application, and we can put that in the show notes as well, fiercefellowship.com. Excellent. Awesome. Anything else for us? I think that's
1: it. I appreciate it, Rick. Dr. Palmer. Thanks for coming up here with us. Thank
0: you.